All right, welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. I'm joined today by Lisa Mitho Fox to talk about the Dawn Raids apology. Welcome to the cast, Lisa. Hello from Lava, Kyle. I mean, I, I guess we'll get it out of the way uh, just really quickly. The apology has just today, um, so we're recording on Wednesday. Uh, just today, being postponed, um, and there's there's no date for that um, as of yet. It was going to be over the weekend. Um, we've just had uh, a new kind of semi-community case pop up in Wellington. Uh, someone who visited from Sydney has been tested on return to Sydney as having COVID uh, and Wellington and you know, all the ministers who are going to attend the event uh, are now in level two. So yeah, a bit of a, a forestalling of something that's been kind of on the way for a while. Um, what was your response to, you know, it being so so close, um, and suddenly being, as far as we know, indefinitely pushed out? I imagine they're going to have something come up uh, pretty quickly as to a new date, but we just don't know yet. Mm. Yeah, I actually think it's a really good thing. Um, it's so interesting, the timing, um, because just yesterday, a group of um, young, well, when I say young, I mean youngish, um, like myself, um, Pacific Island community advocates, I guess is a broad term I could use, and I um, had a Telenor about the apology, and the consensus that came out from that was an apology is a good thing, yes, but actually what needs to happen first is a reckoning with what occurred. Um, and so some of the ideas people had was perhaps a Royal Commission of Inquiry or something like uh, a listening service, whatever it might be, um, but where government officials go around the country and actually hear directly from anyone who was affected and wants to be heard. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting that we were discussing that last night and it was sort of like, well, a foregone conclusion, you know, that this is happening on, on Saturday. Um, so then to have it indefinitely delayed today was like, wow, okay. Um, you know, potentially the government could, um, do something like that, you know, do an inquiry or something and and really listen and hear from the people who were affected. Um, because although I know that a lot of people have been campaigning and, and calling for an apology for a really long time, I think it's a really important milestone that the government is willing to apologize. Um, yeah, it's really like, well, we don't even know what the extent of the dawn raids were. Um, and so what exactly is it that you're apologizing for? So yeah, in a strange kind of way, I think it's actually a really good thing and it could be a great opportunity for the government um, to really listen before they, before they apologize without actually having any kind of reckoning around what was, what was done and how that impacted people. Yeah, and I think, you know, when the announcement that um, they were going to announce the date um, of the apology originally came out, that was, there's immediately some, some talk started around that as well. Um, mm. You're kind of seeing it on social media and a, a little bit in mainstream media as well mm. uh, around, you know, okay, uh, what kind of policy change are we going to see? Um, you know, this was 50 years ago. Mm. Um, it's great that you're uh, apologizing like we would celebrate that, but what does that mean for, you know, the couple of generations affected by it at this point? Um, and then to some pretty bad systemic stuff for, for Pacifica, um, just across the board, I'd say. Do you think that the government is, is likely to take steps in that direction? Do you mean in terms of some kind of remedy? Oh, I mean, I, I, 
Yes, as well. Um, but I mean, in terms of actually having some kind of reckoning or, um, I guess, challenge to them uh, around what happened. Mm. Yeah, I really don't have a sense of it in terms of the inner workings of the Labour Party, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't say. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because it's like the Polynesian Panthers and you know, other people have also made this call um, in the past um, and have continued to call for it. But, you know, most recently it has been the Polynesian Panthers spearheading it and they asked for it to be on their 50th uh, celebration, which was last Wednesday. So, you know, they did ask for it to happen very quickly. So the government essentially is giving them what they asked for like, a week later, yes, but you know, essentially. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's within the realms of possibility would be my sense. And, and I think that that's like, that's something I was kind of talking with um, one of the community advocates about like, you know, I think we can never limit our imagination about what is possible. Like, I think you know, things that we might think aren't possible or practical, actually, when people fall for it and mobilize behind it and campaign on it, it happens. And so, yeah, I think that this kind of COVID event has opened it up, right? Like, yeah, they haven't given it a, a date. So, so why not? And I think that that's, like, even if there had been an apology on Saturday, I think that's, <clears throat> like, was very clear from, from the group of people I was talking with yesterday was, like, we all still agreed there still needs to be some kind of inquiry. Um, yeah. And I think, well, personally, I was really disappointed with the way that they were going to do the apology. Um, it just showed that there wasn't a lot of, um, I mean, I know that a lot of people in government have been working really hard on this, but it, to me seemed that it was rushed because, you know, they just announced, okay, it's going to be at the town hall in, you know, a week and a half's time. And I had thought that it would be open to all Pacific peoples, um, actually anyone who wanted to attend but particularly those were, who were impacted um and we don't actually know who those people are necessarily you know like speaking to people who were dawn raided or were alive at that time you know it affected the whole community and it affected pacific and maori people like it affected all brown people because people were just being harassed on the street and picked up and you know having police barge into their homes and so everyone was living in fear undocumented or not pacific or not you know mm. um and so yeah i just had had assumed that okay just anybody's going to be able to come come and hear this apology and then um i was actually speaking with a friend. <laughs> What's the right word here? Comrade? comrade. <laughs> um, a friend. And um, he had been invited and um, he was like, oh no, it's invitation only. And I was like, what? And so I looked it up on the Ministry of Pacific People's website and yeah, he was right. It was clear from the question and answers that this was invitation only. It was going to be predominantly officials and stakeholders um, and that there would be ethnic, um, Pacific ethnic diversity of, of the invitees. And I was just, I was actually flabbergasted. <laughs> it seemed a little bit naive, but I was flabbergasted. I was like, really? And there was a specific question saying, can I come with my family? And I clicked on it because that's what I was thinking to myself. Like I had envisaged that me and members of my family would go to the apology, you know? And it said... No. <laughs> the other was no. It'll be live streamed on um, Pacific media, and so we suggest that you host watching parties at your house. And I was just like, 
are you serious? Wow. Like, yeah, it just seemed really offensive to me, actually. Uh-huh. Whenever you hear about a government, um, I guess you'd say stage managing um, this kind of official apology situation. I, you know, it could come in any any other number of ways. Mm. Um, you just under, have to wonder what they expect to happen uh, if they do open it up. Why? Why the need to do this? Mm. Um, and especially, you know, there's a lot of talk around uh, around this Labour government being one of the best. Um, sets of communicators um, we've had and yeah you just wonder if they were worried um, that with a more open forum they might get a a handful of challenges um, from the audience and it would it would stop them communicating in the way that they felt they wanted to Mm. yeah potentially but I mean that's a part of a genuine apology right is to hear the people that were impacted and so yeah i mean maybe it was a case of stage management honestly i hadn't even thought about that but that makes sense like i know that um only certain members of the polynesian practice were invited and others oh were. really i heard that secondhand but from a reliable source yeah um yeah like it was kind of relayed to me as being like a pragmatic thing because there's limited seating but also, you know, the Prime Minister did say that the apology would be delivered in a culturally appropriate way. And it's like 101, culturally appropriate is face-to-face, right? And so to me, it's like, no, right from the get-go, it's not culturally appropriate. Um, and to have it in the city, you know, it's like, no, like Pacific people predominantly live out south. Like, yes, at the time the Doyne Raids happened, it was in the city, but now that's not the case. Like. Why couldn't you have it at the Valley Pacifica in Mangere? Or, you know, for me, like, have it in a rugby stadium if you need to, so that everyone can attend. Mm-hmm. But don't have an exclusive event for hand-picked people. Like, that's not, yeah, that's not a genuine apology to me. Yeah, um, I, I didn't realize that it had it was that selective, um, mm-hmm. and who could, you know, apl- even apply to attend. It sounds like. Um, but yeah, also, yeah, just stunned by that. And no wonder you felt, if you had these discussions around, about ending like some kind of reckoning, um, you know, like a road show or um, listen-ins and, and things like that. Mm. Um, because it does feel as if a step has been missed here, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's like, I think the apology, you know, it's been talked about quite a lot in the media, um, but even just like, friends of mine we've been talking about it and then then just like oh yeah I didn't know you know so-and-so in my family was dawn raided and deported and like they just had no idea their family mm-hmm. had just never discussed it because there was so much shame and stigma attached to that and you know actually within the Pacific I can only really speak for Samoans but um not all Samoans <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was a lot of stigma and shame within, you know, like the word overstayer to me, I flinch every time I hear it because Mm -hmm. it's a violent word and it's used as a slur, you know, and yeah, that even within Pacific or Samoan communities, you know, it's um, seen as a thing of shame to be have been an overstayer or to be one. Yeah, I think that was something um, that the Pacific Panthers have been saying as well, right, about the the apology, is that they'd like to see policy around um, pathways to citizenship um, or permanent residency for uh, Pacific peoples here, Mm. um, kind of go alongside it. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, personally, I think that that's right. Like there needs to be a remedy or, you know, an amends for the wrong that was committed. Otherwise, you know, an apology. Yeah, it's kind of, because I know the apology in and of itself is really important. Like 
particularly to older people, I think. Um, and, you know, as we were just talking about in terms of undoing some of that stigma and, and allowing people to, to share their stories. Um, but there needs to be, a, yeah, some kind of amends or, or redress um, to right that wrong, you know? And um, yeah, in terms of an amnesty for undocumented people, um, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that that would be a good form of redress. And, you know, there is, it's happened before. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, one kind of objection or uh, tricky matter that's been raised not quite the right way of saying that but um is that if we're going to have a city led immigration policy then that also means that tangata whenua should be able to um make that call um and you know it's unclear whether or not um tangata whenua do support that so that has been um a matter of discussion and I had actually thought the Māori Party had supported the call, um, but upon closer reading, they haven't explicitly said that. Um, they have explicitly said that they support an education fund, but they haven't explicitly said that they would mm -hmm. support um, pathways to residency for undocumented workers. Um, I mean, I do know some Māori who think that, but who do support the call, but you know, I guess it's always difficult, isn't it? Like who, who is the voice for Tangata Whenua? So that is something um, that has been discussed. But for me personally, I mean, these people are here, you know? They're already here, just like we are. You know, it's a colonial immigration system. Um, and what's the alternative? That they be supported, you know? And I, I just can't see that that's aligned with Manakitanga or, you know, a Tetiriti-led um, immigration system, you know, and I, I mean, I'm not Māori, but that that's my view. Um, and I think, yeah, like, as we all know, having undocumented status leads to all kinds of exploitation, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether that be by landlords um, or employers. Um, and so I think that's really the only, the only position that can be taken. Yeah, especially in the context of um, how New Zealand has treated migrant workers, uh, even, even dawn raids um, and other kind of state-led violence aside. Um, you know, even, at, even post that, in the last decade, um, even in the last year with, with some of the stuff around COVID, um, as a kind of itinerant workforce to, to boost our economic numbers um, mm. because it's convenient um, and, and easy. Uh, yeah, it's, there's a, lot to, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there though. Um, and I can certainly, if, even if I don't understand, uh, agree with, um, the approach by the government, I understand the hesitancy to engage with it because it's not going to be easy. On the part of the government? Yeah, on the part of the government. Um, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't agree with being hesitant about it. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not pro-labor, so uh, yeah. it's easy for me to, to make that call as well, I guess. Yeah. Let's... um. Just kind of go go back to um, when this was happening, I guess, or, or maybe 20, 20 years before, because maybe a lot of our uh, the younger members in our audience um, who haven't had the chance to read up yet, um, and you know, overseas listeners, and maybe even some people who um, were around at the time uh, but never got the full view of what happened um, and, and what led to the the dawn raids. I think. Well, it started in the 1950s, really, didn't it? When a, a series of laws were brought in that allowed this migrant works, workforce from the Pacific Islands uh, 
to come here and uh, help with an economic boom. Um, yeah. Uh, manual yeah. labouring. Yeah. So essentially, um, there was yeah, a series of laws passed to entice Pacific people to come to New Zealand in the 1950s um, to largely do manufacturing jobs um, that New Zealanders didn't want to do um, because they were low paid and hard work. And at that time, there was my understanding is almost full employment. And so um, New Zealanders had the choice, had the option not to do those jobs. Um, and so, yeah, um, the government brought over or encouraged Pacific Island people to come up, come over and take those jobs that, yeah, essentially New Zealanders just didn't want. Yeah. And I mean, you say, um, you know, encouraged, uh, et cetera, but, you know, there's a, there's a history of this through the Pacific as well of doing more than encouraging. You know, there, there have been times in our colonial history where it's an act of uh, slave trade. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and kidnapping, etc. So, yeah, just as, as kind of kind of historical context, even to that, I think that's important. So instead of kind of raising wages or <laughs> making these jobs better, they thought, hey, what what can we do? What policies can we implement to uh, Samoa, Fiji, Tonga? Were the three main Pacific Islands that people were coming from at the time? Yeah, my understanding is um, predominantly Samoan and Tongan. Yeah. Um, I can't actually recall 50% of Pacific peoples in New Zealand now are Samoan. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was similar at the time. Um, but yeah, definitely predominantly um, Samoan and Tongan. So you had about 20 years of these policies. Um, and, you know, lots of Pacific Islanders uh, came here. Um, and they took up these jobs and they uh, effectively uh, put down roots here as well, right? Um, kind of moving into central areas in the city, which, uh, you know, are <laughs> slightly different now. Yeah. Um, so Ponsonby, Greylin, um, a couple of the kind of best examples of gentrified areas um, where migrant workers used to live. Yeah, Freeman's Bay comes up a lot. Um, lots of the Polynesian Panthers live there and um, members of my family live there. Um, yeah. And then in the 1970s, um, you know, the economics winds shifted and suddenly there, there wasn't enough work anymore. Unemployment rates started to go up uh, and the Norman Kirk government decided that I guess that they needed um, a, what do you even call it? Scapegoat. Scapegoat, yeah, sure. Um, To both allow them to free up jobs, uh, essentially, but also relocate, um, deport, uh, harass, Etc. Mm. Um, the Pacific community. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it went from enticing Pacific people to come and take up jobs that New Zealanders didn't want because there was essentially full employment um, to there being an economic downturn, economic crisis, and then all of a sudden Pacific people were made the scapegoat and were seen to be or was promoted that Pacific people were now undermining um, wages and terms and conditions for Pākehā um, and taking Pākehā jobs. And so um, some of that economic downturn was blamed on Pacific people. Um, and yeah, as has been covered quite well, but um, actually the predominant overstayers <laughs> um, were from uh, England and South Africa. South Africa, thank you. Um, but they targeted Pacific Islands uh, overstayers and, and, and scapegoated them. Yeah, I think um, Australia as well um, mm. was the other, the other major group. Um, I pulled some numbers up earlier and I think, um, you know, I undocumented um, Pacific peoples uh, 
made up, you know, a minority. The highest would be like a, a third of, um, the rest essentially being um, white migrants. Um, and yet they accounted for 86% um, of arrests and prosecutions. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was a, you know, you said earlier, you know, obviously is basically a slur. Um, and it was due to it being so, you know, it was, it was racial profiling um, during that entire time. Yeah. Um, and just became so heavily linked with, with that process. Mm. Yeah. And so I didn't actually realize this and I, I don't know how, but um, it was up until 1974. Not sure if that's exactly the right date, but 1970, <laughs> mid 1970s. Um, English people could just migrate to New Zealand with no process. Like it was just an open border to New England. And so when that changed, then some people still kept coming yeah. and then it became um, undocumented. But we might get this to this later, but I'm just gonna make this point now anyway. <laughs> um, so the idea that we can't have an open border to the Pacific is like in that context is kind of strange to me. If you think about the fact that, you know, New Zealand was and is effectively the colonial power in the South Pacific mm-hmm. and that we are so reliant on Pacific labor, um, even with the, you know, now with the recognized seasonal employer scheme and, you know, we've got the issues of climate change, um, which is affecting the Pacific and some islands Unfortunately, it uh, seems that they will shortly be uninhabitable if we don't take serious action. Um, it actually just makes sense to me that we would have an open border to the to the South Pacific. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it was up to 19, 1974 as well, because that's, you know, that's when the Dawn Raids policy kicked in. Mm. Um, and I think something that, um, you know, when people talk about it um, is often not made made as clear as possible uh is that it was for five years so from 1974 to 1979 it wasn't a sometimes people talk about it they talk about it as an event mm. but it wasn't it was a policy setting across five years and two governments mm. um and I, I think it got increasingly worse up until the point it um stopped right yeah so i think that the reason that that impression is made is because because the Polynesian Panthers like all started to organize around it and then kind of sometimes tell the story of how they got, they used to go and like born raid politicians. <laughs> yeah. And so it kind of almost sounds like, oh, well, it just started happening and then um, it was stopped, you know? But yeah, you're right. Like, no, it, exactly. It's, um, yeah, it was an active government policy. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it's it, it's now talked about as being like a, a huge, um, like a long-term series of significant human rights abuses, right? Um, uh, armed police turning up to the homes of suspected um, undocumented workers um, in the early hours of the morning because they, you know, that's when they hadn't yet gone to their manufacturing jobs mm. um, to pull them out and arrest them in front of their families. Yeah, yeah, and that's why it was labelled the dawn raids. Um, but you know, it was happening all hours of the day. You know, people might be um, my friend. You know, one of my friends I was referring to who didn't know that her grandfather. I'm just a little bit hesitant because I don't want to tell anyone. Yeah, of course, I'm not mine to tell. But obviously, it's anonymous. So um, that her grandfather was just picked up um, when he was on his way home from his factory job, you know, in the afternoon and just deported and nobody yep. even knew what had happened to him. <laughs> um, so he just didn't come home one day and, you know, that took some time. It's not that they just, I'll grab you, put you on the next flight, like, no. And so his family were really worried about him and then didn't know that he'd been deported until he was able to contact them and say, I've been deported. Yeah. Um, so yeah. and. There's actually, yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, 
one of my Muslim friends uh, mentioned to me that um, she was at the counter-terrorism hui last week and she said, you know, it was really strange to me that there was no Pacific representation there because, you know, the Dawn raids were an act of terror by the state. And, um, yeah, and, like, I just hadn't really thought about it because, I guess, you know, the hui was supposed to be focused on um, the Muslim community, but um, she's quite right. Yeah, like, why... I, why aren't the government thinking about it in those terms? You know, and they haven't, like, Pacific and Maori people are still so over-policed. Mm-hmm. And, like, the police admit to having unconscious bias towards Maori. We know they have unconscious bias towards Pacific. If we look at South Auckland, um, we know it's an extremely over-policed area. I myself live in South Auckland. And, um, you know, you can hear the police helicopter flying around all the time. I worked in Otara for a while. I never seen so many police in my life. They were just mm-hmm. drive, driving around their cars all the time, just at the shops all the time. And so, yeah, that's an extension, really, of the Dawn Raids is the over-policing of Pacific and Maori communities. So... Yeah, this went on for five years, um, and there are a number of groups who are trying to push back on this, and the, the Polynesian Panthers, you know, as part of the wider um, Panther movement, um, you know, which is a, a global movement, uh, kind of took it into their own hands in a, in a number of ways. Uh, you mentioned before they would, you know, undertake their own dawn raids um, on MPs, just turn up at, at their house. Um, yeah, um, one of the Panthers, and I, can, I actually can't recall who it was, but um, yeah, was talking about the fact that they're all young and so they didn't have cars and so they um, would link up with um, Pakeha allies and <laughs> they'd drive them out to, you know, whoever's politician's house at yeah 3 a.m. in the morning and then switch on the spotlights and um, get out the loud hailers and start yelling at them to come out. And um, the politician did come out on this particular occasion and they just jump in the cars and drive off. <laughs> and then the next day, the next morning, that politician, I can't remember who it was, um, was on the radio saying like, oh, how dare these people come to my house at that God- this ungodly hour. And so, yeah, it, it did um, reveal the hypocrisy of the government. It was, it, you know, these policies were rolled back in, in 1979. Um, and they just weren't really spoken about again, I, I don't think. Um, I, I don't know if the, you know, the economic um, settings had changed enough again that um, it was decided somewhere in um, Treasury or, or the Cabinet that actually we do need uh, migrant workers to support our economic model. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not like it's got any easier um, in, in some respects for migrant workers here, um, especially with, you know, house costs and cost of living, you know, always going up in Auckland. And, and I guess, as you've said as well, you know, um, South Auckland is still probably the most heavily policed place in the country. So some of those, those things stay the same. Um, yeah. Well, actually one of the, um, and the group I was talking to yesterday, or the group of people I was talking to yesterday, um, she lives in South Auckland as well, and, and she said, you know, it still happens today, you know? Yesterday, there were police um, raiding someone's house. I don't know if it was for immigration purposes or what, but in the earliest hours of the morning, and there were, like, multiple police cars, and, yeah, so she said definitely that that sense amongst um, some members of the Pacific community. Actually, as we're talking, I can hear the police chopper flying over. So, there you go. My goodness. Yeah, because it is. It's ubiquitous, right? It's, um, you'll hear it multiple times a week. Yeah. Without fail. Yeah. And I've also heard stories of just, um, I mean, I live in the nice part of South Auckland, but I live in Mangere Bridge. But, um, you know, I've heard it about in the not-so-nice parts of South Auckland, quote-unquote nice, like Otara, that the police will just drive around with a spotlight and just be shining it into people's 
front yards and in their windows and stuff just randomly. Like I've just heard that's that obscene. Yeah. And I, yeah, so I, I guess there are there are parts of it that completely haven't gone away, right? Um, in terms of surveillance um, and harassment. Um, it's just not as overt a policy setting. Um, you know, I, I, I hope um, you wouldn't see it uh, in political campaigns um, yeah. Yeah. currently. Where, where, and it was, you know, it was. Um, people campaigned on it yeah. uh, back in the 70s. Yeah, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't get away with saying it out and out, right? Like, but that's, you know, like the racist immigration policies still exist, you know, like the yeah. pathways for residency are predominantly for what's considered skilled white workers and unskilled brown workers, even if they are here on, on work visas, don't have pathways to residency a lot of the time. And so that racism in the immigration system persists. Going back to the apology, um, now we've given kind of a, a bit of context for that. What were the so so if they've said they're going to they're going to make this apology at some point um, for the dawn rates, um, but we're also talking about the generational effects of that um, and what that has resulted in over the last 50, 50 years. Right? Can you go into a bit of detail about that? I know that's a really big, like, <laughs> a really big ask. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a sense of mistrust um, for institutions and government by a lot of Pacific families and people feeling that this, is, this country is not for us. You know, we're here as, as guests. Um, and I certainly see that in my mother's generation, um, you know, a, a hesitance to ever kind of challenge authority or to stand up for yourself. Um, and, you know, some people might say, oh, well, that's our culture, you know, show respect to those in charge and things. And like, yes, I accept that to a certain degree, but I also think it's because of, you know, it's directly linked to that time um, when they migrated here um, and having experienced, you know, some members having experienced the dawn raids and having experienced that your place here is uncertain, you know, um, has resulted in that for, for lots of my mother's generation. And I think it's, yeah, like I think people of my generation, like I'm first generation, New Zealand born Samoan, like it has a flow on effect for many of my generation as well that they take on board that um, sense of not being able to challenge or trust um, institutions and authorities. And you know, you see that everywhere, like housing New Zealand, um, school. You know, like, it's always in the media about how there's, like, low levels of um, Pacific parents on boards of trustees. And, and it's because it's like, well, those systems aren't for us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I guess administrative yeah. health stuff as well, right, is, is a really big one. Oh, I mean, yeah, like, you know, Māori and Pacific are in the negative statistics for everything housing, health, education, employment, um, we're at the bottom, um, you know, uh, yeah, I saw an article there just last week talking about how um, Pacific young people are experiencing the highest levels of housing deprivation um, and how that's severely impacting their mental health and, you know, it's, actually get sometimes like I actually have to turn it off like the other day mm -hmm. I was driving home and there was just another um, story about how uh, ACC is discriminating against Maori Pacific and women and it's like 
you know, because they um, don't accept their claims at the same rates. Um, and so that means, you know, people don't get the, the help that they need. And they were talking about, well, why is that? And it's like, well, it's because it's a racist institution. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, you see that, yeah, you see that everywhere. Education, um, health, um, wealth. Yep. You know, Pacific people have the median wealth of a Pacific household. Oh my goodness. is 15,000 compared to 138,000 for Pākehā. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, that's a direct result of colonization, right? Like, people inherit wealth a lot in New Zealand and it directs, flows directly from if you had ancestors who came here and were given land by the government, um, then that land is handed down. And, you know, actually, I've experienced that. Um, I've been the beneficiary of that on my pocket side, um, mm. whereas Pacific. Um, families don't have that they didn't come here as colonists yeah. and um in the islands or you know in Samoa, own land is owned customarily it's owned by the collective and so you don't have um equity in your land or anything like that and so that leads yeah leads directly into low home ownership rates same thing for pay you know with the lowest paid ethnic group have been for decades and you know, what does that mean that means you can't buy a house and that means for lots of people of my generation that potentially they'll never be able to buy a house because their parents don't own homes yeah with the lowest home ownership rates of any ethnicity so yeah it's intergenerational it almost no, I mean, it definitely sounds as if um, instead of being an active policy setting, it just became a systemic issue. Mm. Um, it just is less overtly violent, right? Um, and become has become uh, just business as usual. Mm. Because the, in a lot of ways, the results are the same, if not worse. Mm. Um, especially, again, with the way that uh, costs are going up here. Um, you know, I, I guess a lot of um, migrant workers across the board are working low-paying jobs and then spending their money to make landlords richer. That's right, yeah. Like, you can't save for a house when you're earning the minimum wage or close to it. You're underemployed. You know, the average wage for a Pacific person is $26,000 a year. Yeah. All right, so how are you supposed to pay your rent and save for a house? Well, you can't. Yeah. And as you said, like some, like for Pākehā here, you know, that wealth is generational. And if you were here and your, um, you know, your working family members got deported, that generational um, wealth never has a chance to occur. Mm. Um let alone at uh, the, the rates at which um, people benefiting from colonial uh, wealth are able to accrue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of a whole nother topic, but you know, <laughs> colonial role that New Zealand has played um, in terms of extracting resources and people from the Pacific to mean that the Pacific remains uh, developing. If we take it back to what you're saying kind of at the outset of this conversation around what what next then? Um, you know, there's apologies coming up. Maybe there's a chance to have something else happen now that the date's been reset before the apology goes forward. Mm. But, you know, even right at the... Um, the first mentions of, of the apology this year when the um, Panthers were talking about it, um, I think they were saying, yeah, it was um, Willa Lolahia, right, um, was saying that an action that could accompany that would be that pathway to permanent residency. So that that's one um, kind of policy setting that could go alongside the apology that would help to redress some of that historic um, injury. What else um, 
do you see or, or would you consider? Yeah, so I've seen um, pretty much from the older generation, so like Will's generation. Um, so my, my understanding is Will's probably about 70-something. Um, I've seen kind of two calls. So um, one lot of people have been calling for an education fund um, and the other lot of people have been calling for the amnesty um, for undocumented workers and pathways to residency. Um, but from the younger generation, people of my generation, um, I've seen a number of different calls. Um, so I've seen, I wrote it down. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely the Dawn Raids need to form a compulsory part of the New Zealand curriculum yep. <laughs> to make sure we never do anything like this again. Was that part of the education fund that's being um, proposed as well? Because I haven't actually heard about what was the education fund would include? Yeah, I haven't seen details around that. I've just seen people calling for it. Um, so Milani and I, um, who's Polynesian Panther, has been calling for it. And that was also the um, what was called for in the parliamentary petition mm-hmm. um, that was handed over to the parliament today. Um, was that the one from um, Josiah uh, Toyala Mali? And Benji Tima, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that called for an education fund. Um, and then from other people, I, my generation, I've seen people calling for rural pardons for those who were criminalised mm-hmm. uh, for being undocumented, um, a repeal of the, what's called the Citizenship Western Samoa Act. So I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah so <laughs> essentially um samoa was a protectorate of new zealand um mm-hmm. post-world war ii um it's the body that was before the united nations league of nations yeah they just said here you go like they carved up the world and they said okay you can have the mandate to this country you can have the mandate to this country and that's actually how um, Israel was created. It was through the same at the same time through the same process. Samoa, um, yes, was given to New Zealand, and um, so then someone was forgotten their name. She was going to be deported um, from New Zealand, and she actually challenged New Zealand and said, "Wait a second, I should be a citizen." Um, and it went all the way, the challenge went all the way to the Privy Council. And the Privy Council said, yes, you are correct. New Zealand, uh, Samoa was essentially a colony of New Zealand during this period. And it was a protectorate. Therefore, anyone during or uh, born or alive during that period is automatically a New Zealand citizen. I had no idea about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... Then it was like, wow, all these people are New Zealand citizens, right? And so would their descendants would be New Zealand citizens, including, pretty sure her name was Lisa. And the New Zealand government were like, oh, no, 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 we can't be having this. So then they brought in this act. They brought in the Citizenship Western Samoa Act, which still remains on the books in New Zealand. And it stripped the people, Samoan people during born during that time of their citizenship. Holy shit. Yeah. That's horrific. Yeah. So um, was this, when did this act come into force? Was it in the, same time, in the same time period, in the 1970s? Pretty sure it was 1981, but very unhelpfully, I have not written that down. I can just look it up right now. 1982. So this was after that Dawn Raids period, even. Mm. Yeah, it really does just go on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, like, I have a family member who um, they knew that the police were coming, um, and that was in the early 80s, so supposedly post-Dawn Raids. Like, they were warned somehow. Mm -hmm. They had to, like, run away. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, ongoing in a sense. Um. So yeah, the repeal of that act, so that would give back people their citizenship. Yeah. 
Um, and then financial compensation, those who were convicted of yeah. being and supported, those are the main things that I've seen. Awesome. And they all sound so straightforward. Mm. You know, they sound like the bare minimum almost um, yeah. for the, the things that were um, just, yeah, just done too. Um, Pacific peoples during that period. Yeah, it's like all pretty standard stuff, really. I mean, the Western Samoa Act is, it's insane. It's insane that it still exists. And I can remember as a child, I must have been maybe nine. And this man came to our door and we lived in a Pacific, uh, predominantly Pacific community in Wesley and Mount Roscoe. And um, this man came to our door and he was one of the people going around getting um, Samoan people to sign a petition to say, remove this act. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was like a hundred thousand people, like over a hundred thousand people who signed this petition. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> the people have been trying to like organize around this issue and get it off the books. Like it's just unbelievable that it still exists. Like stripping people of their citizenship is just, but the complexity is that there was the friendship treaty signed between Samoa and New Zealand. And so the compromise that was made was that New Zealand would have a quota for Samoan people instead of full citizenship for everybody pretty much. And so that quota remains in place. That doesn't sound suspicious at all. No. And actually the quota isn't filled, like regularly isn't filled because the criteria for it is like you have to have certain levels of um, written and verbal English is the main barrier that I've heard about. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. And so <clears throat> just regularly the quota isn't filled and it's something like 1,200 people a year. Um, and there are actually other quotas for other Pacific countries, but that one's the highest because of this friendship treaty because essentially it was a compromise to not have everyone be a New Zealand citizen. Yeah. And I've kind of thought about over the years, like, why did the Samoan government agree to this? And the only thing I can kind of think of is that they didn't want like, a mass exodus. But, I mean, I'm not sure that, yeah, who knows, I'm not sure that that would occur necessarily anyway. Like, lots of, you know, like, I have cousins who just love living in Samoa. They just want to live in Samoa. Like, mm -hmm. I also have cousins who... <laughs> all our families here adopted them so that they could just come and live here and be citizens right. <laughs> um, which is kind of like the workaround that everyone does um, so yeah it's pretty it's pretty suspicious do you think that this Labour government is likely to move in that direction to repeal the act yeah, or just to, to, to do any of these things that you've outlined. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of heard that they'll likely, possibly, that they'll possibly give an education fund and that that would probably be something proximate to the $5 million fund that was given for um, the Chinese poll tax. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, I think making it a compulsory part of the curriculum would be pretty basic. And, you know, there's um, developments being done within the Ministry of Education um, by being led by Pacific people to have uh, like Pacific history curriculum, um, like Pacific studies is what it's going to be called as an option. So, you know, work has been done in that area anyway. So mm. I think just simply to make it a compulsory part of the curriculum. Well, I say that, but then it's actually not compulsory in New Zealand to learn New Zealand history. I know. Yeah. One of five countries. So oh, I didn't know it was that low. Hmm. Um, OECD countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But, um, yeah, so it's sort of like, well, that would have to be fixed before we make the dawn raids on compulsory part. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. I, I wonder if that goes uh, hand in hand with being such a um, young colonial country. I, I imagine so. Like the government not wanting us to learn our own history? Because the New Zealand war stuff in particular is um, it's pretty horrible stuff. Um, yeah, and there's been a big... And it's not long ago. Yeah. There's been big pushes for that to be compulsory. Yeah. Hey, and where has that got to? I'm not sure. Yeah, not, not really anywhere at this point. Um, it does sound like it's moving, though. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll see. We'll see what um, what Labour chooses to do with it, with a range of the stuff, I guess. Yeah, I think it will also depend on whether or not they get another term. Do you think it's going to be something that they um, they offer to voters? Which which um, feather feather reparations or or restitution? Because I think is I don't know if this is right or not, but part of them having such a large number of MPs in Parliament means it's also the most Pacific people that have been in Parliament ever. Yes, that's correct. It's the most Pacific Parliament ever. Most Pacific government ever because all the Pacific people are in the government or the Green Party. Um, actually, sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm not, sh I'm not aware about the Act Party. Um, if anyone in there is, I don't really feel I can answer that. Like, I can, but I don't think it's. Yeah. I think I would hope that would be the case. I would hope that the Pacific Caucus would organise themselves and push for this. Um, you know, push and say, hey, look, you know, actually, we need reparations of some kind. We need some kind of reckoning to ensure that this doesn't happen again and to make right for the wrongs of the past but i'm not sure whether or not that's yeah it's just it's something i often kind of um ruminate on i, I guess um and that labor is often very happy to give credit for you know their win to some random swing voters um but it's you know Pacific communities and and um, Maori communities who have often been Labour stalwarts, um, and especially in this recent majority result, you know huge huge swings in in South Auckland, um, you know which is all like has always been Labour, but just huge numbers, and I just please, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's like, I think Pacific people are still, Pacific communities are still coming to terms with how to harness that power. And I guess that's the other thing, you know, which lots of people often say, like Pacific communities are not all the same, which is true, but like, yeah, absolutely. Like most Pacific people that vote for Labour. And so, one would think that they could be, could be a block, and you know most Pacific people are working class. Um, but yeah, I think actually it feeds back into that conversation we were having earlier about not being, um, not feeling empowered to really challenge institutions, you know, including government, including the Labour Party, and say, yeah, actually we do vote for you on mass. If we didn't, then you'd be in trouble. And so we want X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, I think that sort of communities of people um, hesitate to do that. Something that I hope will happen more in the future. And I think, I think there's high expectations in terms of, well, I mean, that's the generational shift as well, you know, for New Zealand people such as myself, it's different. Like, you know, we were born here. We know this is our home. We feel entitled to have a voice. Um, well, certainly I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and lots of my peers do as well. And so 
it is different, you know, and it's like, yeah, looking at, um, maybe it's 15 Pacific MPs, maybe it's even higher than that, but, you know, the largest Pacific caucus in a government ever. It's like, well, yeah, we do have expectations. You need to deliver. We're not just voting for you so you can sit there earning your hundred and something K. So, yeah, I'm hoping that that will that will shift and i and i do see that you know amongst my peers like we do specific like yeah require more than our parents um did or sometimes do i think um just purely in terms of optics uh, one of the things which has has been apparent to me is that um you know you have seen more of uh pacific mps um in the, in the public eye this term than i think of seen in my lifetime. Um, so seeing Opito Williams here um, kind of fronting stuff um, and, and Chris Vafoy um, as well, um, you know, getting, getting ministries and, and the like. I can't remember like seeing that really previously um, to the same extent and, and being able to be in their own spaces a lot more. Um, which I think is is good that they at least the Labour Party at least thinks that that's valuable, um, on some level. Yeah, and I mean Carmel Cipollone is number seven on the list. Yep, she's the highest um, Pacific. The word not rated MP ever, highest on the list ever, um, and you know she's obviously got a huge portfolio, and you know to Labour's credit, they have been very deliberate about recruiting and promoting. You know, it's not an accident. They didn't just one day have <laughs> these Maori and Pacific No, they put together a plan. They went out there. They recruited. They um, had all kinds of positive measures, um, and that has resulted in this very diverse and representative um, government. And I think, I think that's great. And I think it's important. And I think you know, credit where credit's due. I guess it's just that next step of, okay, so what is it that you're delivering for us? Like, yeah, it's great to have ministers, you know, cabinet ministers who are Pacific and who are Māori, but what exactly does that mean in tangible outcomes for our people, you know? And I guess and I have other thoughts, but... Yeah, I think we're almost getting into a full other cast, right, at this point. And because there's plenty to talk about, like, you know, um, with... With this kind of generational effect, um, it just has so many different uh, branches to it that we could give a whole cast each and of their own. Hey, thanks so much for um, taking the time to, to come on the cast this afternoon, this evening, actually. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I've been really good to chat. Hey, um, I, guess, I guess two questions. One, if people wanted to follow you um, anywhere and see what else you have to say, where can they do that? On Twitter, my handle is just my name, at Lisa Mitchell. And if people wanted to engage with some of these issues um, or organize around them, um, do you have any pointers for where they could do that? Mm, big question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's some amazing um, writers we talked about earlier um dylan asafo i think he's an incredible voice and he's young and he's pacific and yeah i'm really just spot on spot on with his with his politics um and then there's groups like they call themselves pilot um who are young pacific group in christchurch um who else is there I always think of young people. Join your union. Join your um, committee Pacifica inside your union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's just, yeah, I would say Morgan Godfrey's Twitter can be good to follow. Um, I mean, he predominantly speaks on Māori issues, but he is actually also Pacific. Um, Brooke Fairfair at AAAP. You know, um, I think she's really, um, yeah, she's a young female civic leader and um, yeah, leading a really important group doing 
um, really crucial work for unemployed workers and, um, you know, doing a lot of work on the immigration system at the moment. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, um, if you've, if you've uh, enjoyed, enjoyed this, um, go and find those people. I'll also drop uh, Dylan's uh, newsroom article into the uh, description for this as well. So you can find that there quite easily. Hey, if uh, you, our audience, have enjoyed this, um, give it a share, give it a like, give it five stars, etc. Um, we really value uh, people sharing and talking about us. Uh, so come and hit me up or, or any of my co-hosts on social media. Um, you can find us at one of 200 podcast or on my website at one of 200.nz. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism.